0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and you're tuned into the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. We've just celebrated our 64th National Day. And, you know, as much as the number is pretty big, technically, we are still pretty young as a country. Which means that it is not a surprise, really, that we as a country are grappling with our sense of identity. This question is, of course, extended to our architecture as well. What is Malaysian architecture? So, in this episode, we're going to talk to Alice Sabrina Ismail. She's the Director of Architecture from the Faculty of Built Environment and Surveying, University Technology, Malaysia. And she's going to help break this question down by tracing back our architectural history.
1: Okay, so thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, BFM Radio Show and uh, I think I would like to wish all Malaysian and viewers out there Happy 64th National Day. Okay, my name is uh, Dr. Elisa Brina Ismail and I'm actually the Director of Architecture Program in the University of Technology Malaysia in Skudai and uh, my experience in teaching currently have been more than uh, 10 years in architecture and uh, my niche area is focusing on architecture, history, theory and criticism And my interest is actually More on architecture education uh, Islamic architecture Politics and architecture And also in national identity
0: So uh, going back to What you have hinted just now uh, About national identity Yeah, it is a question that I think uh, Based on my observation Has always been asked But no one seems to Find an answer to it So like perhaps maybe You know we can use this session To um, dissect it further, right? But before we do that uh, Can you just perhaps You know us a bit of like a primer on the history of our architecture and quote-unquote identity
1: Okay. Uh, if you look into uh, the Malaysian architecture and the Malaysian built environment, uh, our architecture is actually shaped by by the past histories in terms of our political and social milieu that happened in the country. And to understand this, uh, perhaps I would like to divide the history of Malaysian of architecture into main phases. One is the early years, that is before the 14th century up until the 18th century, which comprises of the Malay Sultanate era, the pre-colonial subjugation by the Portuguese and the Dutch, and that's then followed by the colonials, and then The second one is the post-independence era, which is from the 1950s, uh, when we achieved our independence, up until now to the present context, which is under the various phases of development of uh, Malaysian Prime Minister's leadership from Tunku Abdul Rahman up till the ninth Malaysian Prime Minister, which is the current one. So, uh, let me explain briefly about these two eras first and how does the architectural evolution in the country took place. So, if you look before the 14th century, at that time, Malaysia is not known as the Malay Peninsula and it is much confined to the domesticated scale built form where the function and the purposes are looking into much individualistic kind of a building topology at the communal level and also at the individual level. So most of the architecture are in the form of traditional houses, madrasa or Islamic religious school and we also have palaces uh, and also the architecture style looking into responsive towards the climate and the usage of local materials like timber. And it is much influenced by the local customs and belief. And as you can see also there are few assimilations happen in this uh, vernacular traditional era where there are designs uh, that is brought from Riau, from Sumatra, from Java, by the traders who comes in into the um, Malay Peninsula, and they blended this and assimilate this design into reflection into the architectural form and the space making. For instance, like the roof design, using the tiered pyramid roof, the aesthetics ornamentation expression, and one good example, as you can see in this vernacular traditional era, is the Kampung Laut Mosque which is the oldest mosque in Malaysia that was, was built in the 14th century, which resembled to the Masjid Agung Demak in Indonesia, which shows the sensitiveness to the local climate in terms of its three-tiered roof form design. So what I can say is that during this vernacular traditional era, everything uh, in terms of the architecture is more towards domesticate scale. So it is more towards private use and more towards community use. But when the pre-colonial comes in, which is the Portuguese and the Dutch to Malacca in the 15th century up until the 17th century, they had changed the local landscape of the Malay Peninsula architecture. So at this time, the experimenting of a new materials starts to come in because the Dutch and the Portuguese brought in the usage of modern materials like stone walls and bricks and they start to introduce the building of monumental scale uh, built form like fortresses, churches and you can see this a lot in Malacca like the Heist, you know, the Red House in Malacca, And this gave a new kind of a different style compared previously in the vernacular traditional era. And not only that, the Portuguese and the Dutch also brought in a new architecture style from their home back home, which is like the, the assimilation of neo-Gothic into the local architecture. We have the Renaissance, the Palladian architecture, which shows a lot of mix of, of Greek and Romans. And we have the Tudor architecture also during the pre-colonial era and after the pre-colonial era comes in the colonial era so this colonial era is actually the British when they start to come in during the late 18th century. And actually, I think the British gives a lot of impact to the local architecture scene because they have been subjugate us for about 130 years until we achieved independence up in 1957. So a lot of changes had occurred to the local context, not only in terms of the political administration, the economic standing, the social structures, but also to the built environment landscape. And there's a lot of vast new architecture style was brought in and introduced by the British that shaped the local architecture. And what I can say here is that the British is actually the dominant builders. They are the influencers, the designers that uh, come up with various typologies of buildings, kind of a design approach from public buildings like schools, you have administrative centers to mosques, shop houses and others. And during this time, there's a lot of architecture style surface like the straight eclectic style, which showed the assimilation of the Malays, the Chinese and the European architecture elements. And this example can be seen in a lot of shop houses that is still available now in big city centers like Melaka, Penang and KL. And the beauty about these shop houses, even though when the British comes in, is about how the way they design the floor plan and the architecture. Whereas you can see when they are the first one who come up to the uh, the design of the of the shop houses, where you have these two story shop houses, and the upper floor is actually for the living quarters, and below is actually reserved for trading and business purposes. And most of the shop houses actually are built in long narrow building footprint, but One of the beauty about it is that they always respect to the local climatic context where they have air wells built within the inner spaces. And this allows the natural lighting and ventilation comes into the building. So in one sense, uh, what I can say is that even though the colonials introduced buildings using modern materials in Malaysia at that time, but they still respond to the local climate for the comfort of the dwellers. And another popular style during this era, as you can see, is the Anglo-Indian style. Okay, and this one can use a lot in Penang, especially in bungalow design, uh, where where they adopt the architecture style from India, which is also the country that is subjugated at that time, and brought in the the architectural elements into the Malaysian context. And you can see one other example is at the administrative buildings, like the municipal building that is still standing now in Penang. And other architecture style that is also they brought in is like neoclassicism, you have mogul architecture style, you have streets eclectic, European classical, European art deco, and, and a lot more. So I, I don't think I have time to to explain about each different style because there's a lot range and diverse of architecture style. And when the British leaves the country and we achieve our independence in 1957, so this is where uh, Malaysian need to be on its own and it, it needs to manage the country on its own. So under Tunku Abdul Rahman, which is our first prime minister, uh, there are not many local architects in the country yet. There are still a lot of British architects still serving in the PWD, which is the Public Works Department. And, and many of them still remain as expatriates And because they are so fond with the local culture. So when we achieve our independence, this is the era is known as the experimental era. And this era showed a big leap on how the country should be governed and what is the malicious direction as a newly independent state. And the biggest challenge uh, during this time is about how to gain confidence from the masses and rally for their support towards the country and to be united and to propagate the nationalistic sentiment. So this is the role that Tunku took when he he uh, led the country as the first prime minister of Malaysia so at this post uh, at this early post independence era there's a lot of prominent building structures to symbolize Malaysia as a newly independent state so for instance uh, the national mosque which is a very iconic building was built by uh, datuk baharudin and the beauty about this national mosque is that it uses this idea of modernistic expressionism style, which shows the abstraction of Malay architecture into modern architectural language. Uh, and if you can see at the, um, how the National Mosque was designed, it is designed uh, like the resembles the Malay traditional house where it was built on stilts. And if you can see the National Mosque, it is raised up one floor above the ground. And also it has a lot of uh, using a lot of air holes to allow natural ventilation to come into the mosque. So if you go to National Mosque and pray, it is very comfortable. Uh, you don't need to use aircon system or mechanical ventilation because of the breeze from the pool that is located beside the main prayer hall. That gives actually a, a nice comfort and also a nice breeze when you do your prayers inside the inside the uh, main prayer hall. So this is the concept where the first uh, architects are trying to experiment between modern and also try to bring in traditional architecture and try to merge in with the local climate for local climate aspects, for comfort for the users. And another building iconic is uh, parliament house that was built by Ivo uh, Shipley, which also shows this idea of modernistic expressionism style, uh, which shows the abstraction of Malay architecture in terms of the roof form. Where he uses this a concrete plate roof, but using modern materials like concrete to translate the architectural roof form, so this is where we call the marinade between the modern and traditional starts to come in by the PW architects uh, during when we first achieve our independence. but as you can see during the early era, the build architecture style still showed a very good response towards the, the local climate needs. And there are also other buildings like National Museum, designed by Ho Kok Kyo, the General Hospital by Kuala Lumpur, by, by Wells & Joyce, okay, that uses the 8 crate design at the facade, like the Chandiga, designed by Likor in India, for its exterior facade, to give this element of a natural shading device to the building. So in the 1960s, uh, this is where a lot of influence by the modern master builders in Europe like Le Corbusier, Frank Locke Wright on or organic architecture, the brutalist architecture and also the Mies van der Rohe uh, idea on structuralist architecture and form follows function comes in to the Malaysian context during these uh, early years of, uh, under Tunku. And after the era of Tunku, we have the era of the uh, post-independence era under Tun Razak and Hussein On, which is this one is under the 1970s and the 1980s. So I would like to call this era is uh, the consolidation and also the development era because this is where Malaysia starts to grow in terms of economy and uh, a new economic policy plan was introduced because this was after the 13 May 1965 racial riot. So the role of the leaders was that they want to heighten up back the Malaysian economy at that time. And uh, in and big cities starts to open up, new settlements starts to open up. And this show a lot of big influx of populace from villages to the cities for better work opportunities and living standards. So at this time, the architectural landscape is quite different from the era of Tunku Abdul Rahman because this era is much focusing on commercialization, the booming of the industries, uh, big business centers, new satellite towns and housing living settlements start to open up like Taman Melawati, okay, Taman Tun Dr. Ismail, those are the early living settlements okay, in, in, in 1970s and also medium uh, high density housing schemes are also vastly constructed to cater for the needs of the populace uh, influx into the cities like flats in Jalan Secular and then you have living flats in Jalan Loyu Yu in Kuala Lumpur. And also low-cost housing also comes into place in this time and one of the most famous one is Cherasling House. Okay, which is the, the early house of, of low-cost in Malaysia that is designed using a very simplified arrangements to allow social interaction uh, with the usage of modern materials from the concrete and bricks. And also public complexes, shopping complex, also come in to build during this era. Um, I'm sure that, Hanif, you heard about Ampang Park Plaza but Upper Park Plaza is actually one of the oldest and the prominent shopping complexes that was built in the 1970s. And the beauty of this is that the shopping complex design is actually looking into regionalism kind of a design approach and where the architect starts to implement the usage of atrium inside it to allow natural lighting and, and, and natural ventilation into the shopping complexes. So, uh, there's a lot of uh, other buildings, commercial buildings also was constructed, like the Hotel Hilted in Kuala Lumpur which portray the revivalism approach that combined traditional Malay architecture and modern expression. And this one you can see in terms of the frontal roof porch where it is designed to adopt the traditional Malay roof design. And at that time, KL Hilton is the early first high-rise building in Malaysia that stand up, up to 36-story high in height in KL. And local universities also were built throughout the country like USM, uh, UTM. And as you can see, UTM also have this uh, reflection of traditional Malay really setting in terms of its design campus, in terms of the form making and, and so forth. And following that, we have Telekom Tower, Lebaga Tabung Haji, the Maybank Tower, all are being inspired by the traditional Malay items like the Malay drum, the bamboo trunk, the craze and so forth. So this era is known as the consolidation era because uh, the architects are trying to experiment also, but they are trying to to work with the economic development during that time. And a lot of experimentation, like new styles also coming out, like postmodernism, we have modern vernacular, modernistic expressionism, and so forth. But after this era... From the 1980s up until the present, this is known as the visionary era in Malaysian architecture because the focus not only on commercialization, but it is more towards megalopolis projects. Okay, big, big projects like, um, uh, we have KLIA and then we have the Twin Tower uh, we also have the Putrajaya the Cyber Jaya, and it starts to come in but also there are also other commercial projects like Meseniaga Building built by Kenyang. Uh, we also have the LRT Station uh, Bukit Jalil so all of this architecture style during this uh, visionary era under Mahathir Badawi Najib until now uh, reflect this modernistic kind of expressionism and modern regionalism approach which is responsible also towards the climatic factors, but the architects also experiment in using new technologies and materials available in the international market and adopt it into the local context. So, as you can see, there's a lot of diversified architectural style like deconstructivism, postmodern revivalism, foreign revivalism. We have critical regionalism, blobby texture, okay, interactive architecture, and, and many, many more to come. And I would like to add on also because the year 2000, uh, Hanif also shows uh, the sensitivity of the national identity comes into place. Okay, Uh, Because before this, no no one discussed a lot of national identity. But in the year 2000, there's a lot of collaborations happened between the government and the local architectural bodies in trying to develop the concept of national identity. So at this time, uh, MASIK, which is known as Majlis Senebina Identity Kebangsaan, was formed in November 2013, which is under the support by the government uh, by Tansri Dr. Rais Yatim, who was at that time the government's social and cultural affairs advisor. So, he initiated this and, and after that, uh, MASIK followed by the preparation of GASIK, which is the Garis Panduan Seni Bina Identity Kebangsaan. And this was published in 2014. But this is actually the beginning framework of the National Architecture Identity Policy and following from GASIK, uh, Lembaga Architect Malaysia prepared a renewed policy uh, from GASIC known as DASIK on September 2017, which is Dasar Seni Bina Identity Kebangsaan. So, DASIK is more comprehensive, which is relevant to the constitutional and cultural demand, where it aimed to serve as a reference and guidance to academic, professional planners, architects, designers, policymakers, and those related authorities to to provide a building environment where looking into the characteristic of national identity towards more innovative valuable and sustainable kind of an approach but DASIK is actually uh, still in draft okay and uh, it's, it's still not being officially emphasized and implemented up until now so that's that, that is what what is the whole overview a very brief overview about the malaysian architecture and uh, what is happening in the country
0: That was Ali Sabrina Ismael. She's the Director of Architecture from the Faculty of Built Environment and Surveying, University Technology Malaysia. And she has just broken down our architectural history as we work towards trying to answer the question of what is Malaysian architecture. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. <laughs> BFM 89.9, you're listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharudin and joining me on the show today is Ali Sabrina Ismail. She's the Director of Architecture from the Faculty of Built Environment and Surveying University Technology Malaysia and she's here to try and explain where we are at the moment when it comes to decrypting the very complex conundrum of Malaysian architecture. Let's continue the conversation. Uh, so it's kind of interesting That you mentioned That uh, right now We're in the midst of I guess drafting a policy On Malaysian architecture is that, is that a fair term To describe it?
1: Yeah yeah. Because DASing Is still at the draft policy And it's not being Officially emphasized And implemented At the uh, authority level So we are still Looking into it So that's why Malaysian architecture Is still uh, What I'm saying is, is not shaky But we are still In the process of Trial and error I
0: see. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Considering that, I think we you know when it comes to question of like a Malaysian architecture, like must it be you know made formal in that way? Like, or can it be just a philosophy or an an idea that can be I guess accepted by by the masses? If you know what I mean? Like, like must it be drafted into our policy to have like a Malaysian architecture identity, or like you know it's supposed to just be a fluid idea where everyone can just agree or disagree with like you know but at the same time everyone can have like a sense of an idea of as to what it is you, you know like, you know
1: yeah I think um, the the thing is that wherever we go I think we need to have a guideline okay the guideline doesn't mean that it's trick us on what are we was supposed to do but it should some sort like uh, give us direction but it is up to the individual on how to explore the, the direction of the architecture. It is, up, it is up to the architects, it is up to the designers. But the guidelines still need to be there, because it, it, does, it doesn't mean to give a sense of control or trying to be uh, authoritarian in, in some ways, but then it should some sort like a give a direction on, on saying, what, "What should we do or what should we not do?" Okay, but how you're going to venture into it, how you're going to do it, how to explore about it and how you're going to expose the architecture is up to the designers, the innovative thinking of the designers. Yep.
0: Okay, uh, but in terms of you know, talking about it, in terms of you know, just an idea, have we ever tried to actually find what is our Malaysian architectural identity?
1: Okay, uh, the, the question of this actually, uh, you can see when, when, when I discussed earlier, talking about since the vernacular traditional era up until now, Okay, the, the evolution of uh, national identity is actually there before the 14th century up until the current context. Okay, That's why I'm saying the word national identity is not a fixed term because it can be defined by under so many things under one roof, okay? Because national identity, you can look it into the tangible and intangible elements or factors. But uh, to me, if you are looking at the, the direct thing, what is the understanding of when you talk about architecture that look into the national identity, you must always relate to the local absolute factors and the local relative factors. So these local absolute factors and the local relative factors relate to the spirit of place and spirit of time. Okay, so that is my advice to the, to the architects and the designers. When we're designing a building, if we're looking into these two main philosophies as guidelines, just period of place, period of time, we won't design buildings that is out of place. That means that we will design building that is according to our own local culture, to our own local context, and to our own local religious belief and to our own needs, what is actually we need. So, yeah, we need need to look into that actually, the consideration of the factors, which is the local absolute factors and the local relative factors.
0: Mm. Can you expand on that a bit? Like what what, what do do you mean by local absolute factors and local uh, relative factors?
1: Okay, uh, if we talk about that, uh, the spirit of place, spirit of time, which means you should focus on design approaches and have clear understanding about the local detail elements, the use of local materials, the local style composition and expression, okay, And, and how you're going to look into climatic kind of a local approach and understanding the local context itself which is the social behavior, the um, political behavior, and also the economic standing at that time, which is happening in the country. And uh, one good example uh, of this one, if you look into this, is the um, building design uh, by... uh, Jimmy Lim, I think, architect Jimmy Lim, when he designed the Salinger House. okay. If you look at the Salinger House, uh, it, it reflects the idea of modern regionalism uh, using a lot of uh, modern experimentation of materials. You have a mixed mixture of bricks, you have steel, you have glass and everything. But then uh, the, he still focuses on this idea of the local context, which is responding to the local climate. And when you have a building that is designed like this, it suits to the existing users' needs and also it looks nicely built on the site. So it reflects back to the how how the you respond to the local cultural climate and the landscape. So this is this is important that we need we need to look at. And DASIC is also focusing on this, on this kind of elements as part of its guideline also.
0: The question of climate is pretty important, right, When it comes to a country like Malaysia, because sometimes we have seen uh, some buildings that are designed to be more aesthetically pleasing, but might not necessarily be practical, right? Especially when you take into factor uh, our climate, and and now especially you know in this very moment, uh, the question of ventilation has become a lot more important now. So, so that's also another thing that we have to, I guess, consider, and perhaps you know in designing a building that's more suited to our climate. Indirectly, we are also thinking about ventilation in that sense, right? If yeah. you think about it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's true. That's true, Hanif. I'm agreeing with you uh, because uh, if you look into that, I always like to take the quote from Vitruvius. Okay, have uh, you have heard Vitruvius? He was a very famous uh, Roman army engineer during the Roman Empire, and at that time he works under the reign of the Emperor Augustus, and he wrote this classic architecture book, okay, known as the Ten Books in Architecture, and his most famous dictum is "Utilitas, Famitas and venustas." Okay, I hope you have heard this, this dictum. Okay, utility means functionality. Okay, strength means how you're going to design. A building that can be appreciated through the stand of time and also beauty or the aesthetic values to it. So these three are actually the essential components of architectural values that also need to be supported with the idea of spirit of place and spirit of time. And you can produce buildings and and good buildings that have values and function to it that can appreciate with the local context and with the the local needs of the human behavior and, and also the psychology of the user itself.
0: Mm. This is going to sound a bit contradictory, but earlier I said that, you know, sometimes we shouldn't be focusing too much on the aesthetics. But at the same time, you know, when it comes to relating to the concept of uh, design of a building, for example, we want to, first and foremost, maybe, you know, visualize it, right? So, and sometimes, you know, when it comes to uh, designing, based on my rough observation, it looks like sometimes we tend to focus a lot more on, I guess, replicating or, you know, forcing in concepts that are, I guess, related to our identity as a country or as people. So sometimes, you know, we seem to be like trying to shoehorn, you know, designs that are like, oh, okay, you know, let's design this building in the shape of a tanja because, you know, that's our quote-unquote identity and whatnot, right? So is this a good way to think about our, I guess, Malaysian architecture? It doesn't necessarily have to be literal in that sense, right? You can still be quote-unquote minimalist or modern looking you know and i'm using that term in a very layman way Uh, but at the same time uh, still reflect the value and identity of the people right
1: yeah, yeah, it should be. Okay, um, it, and following to that, your question is that if you look into um, the architects in Malaysia, uh, there is actually five main different kind of approaches that we can sum up as a whole. Okay. The first one is the revivalism approach. The revivalism approach means that you're designing a building that you try to revive the traditional architecture in the modern context, but using different representation or different style. Okay, for instance, you can see the Kota Darul Naim administrative building, which is located in Kelantan, which is inspired from the traditional Malay house as a reference, but it was reinterpreted using the modern materials and outlook. And the second approach is the modernistic expressionism approach, like I had described before. And uh, I had also mentioned on the good examples, the parliament building, the national mosque, the KLI International Airport by Kisho Kurokawa, where it uses a lot of uh, modern materials and technology and looking into the modern uh, expressionism in terms of the external facade and design treatment and so forth. And the third one is the metaphoric approach. So this metaphoric approach is a bit tricky. So... You can have the direct imitation of metaphoric approach, or you can have the abstract kind of a metaphoric approach. So one of the successful building design that using this abstract metaphoric approach is uh, the building of Mebeng tower designed by Hijas Kasturi, which reflect the idea of the crease, the Malikris. But uh, the intention was not that try to show the Malikcrise as the shape as the Malikcri itself, but try to get the abstraction, the essence of it. By placing in terms of the core tower, the core system, and also by doing the planning of the layout. But at the end of the day, when 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 people view the building, it looked like a craze. But actually, when he just just redesigned that, he doesn't have that intention to showcase it as a craze. Actually, so this this might be different if you look into the Perpustakaan Negara. Okay, Pustaka Negara Malaysia are using this direct kind of an interpretation of metaphoric approach by implementing this idea of the Malay Tanja, we call it the Malay Head Groom. So the Malay Head Groom, the architect or the designers translated it directly in terms of the form making and also in terms of the uh, layout of the uh, and negara. So there's nothing wrong with saying that there's wrong or right about how the designers approach the metaphoric kind of a design implemented into the architecture style and things like that. But at the end of the day, the big question is that we should ask ourselves as a designer. Uh, we are going to design a building that must be functionable. Okay, that must be according to the local context and the local culture and the identity. And the building must be accepted and can be what you call that pleasing not only to the eyes of the beholder, but also it is functional to the user to use the building. Okay, so so that is the big question. Then the fourth one is the functionalism approach, which is the comprising of the machine and organic functionalism. And this one is shown a lot of building design by Ken Young, our famous prominent architect. Uh, One of it is Mesin Yager, which is popularly known as the bioclimatic skyscraper. And the fifth one is the regionalism approach. And this one has been a lot of uh, explored in like building in Datai in Langkawi, which uses this uh, critical regionalism, uh, not primitive example of a regionalism kind of approach into its design by using these traditional timbers, uh, traditional Malay roof styles and things like that. So this is actually the five approaches in, in architecture design that a lot of designers now in Malaysia are, are looking into it.
0: Yeah, so just just to wrap up, I guess, our primer look into Malaysian architecture and identity, uh, I would like to just ask whether you know this process should also be left to only the technocrats or should it also involve the public? Because when it comes to talking about um, design Yeah, you can have a bunch of architects, you know, sitting around, you know, being proud of like their design that they feel uh, relates or answers the question of like, you know, uh, what is the Malaysian architecture and identity, right? But at the same time, you also want the public to also have a form of appreciation, especially the members of the public that are not necessarily inclined to building designs, right? But at the same time, you want them to also have a form of uh, relation, you know, for them to also be feeling as involved when it comes to this, these buildings, right, or these designs. So, yeah, is that is that something worth exploring, worth considering?
1: Well, okay, that is a big question and I think Malaysian needs to change their mindset. <laughs> okay, so because when we talk about the built environment, uh, we cannot leave the decision-making and everything uh, to the professionals, to the architects or to the designers or the authorities on the field. The public should play a role also in determining uh, how the built environment are going, are we going to live in. Okay, like the most famous quote by Winston Churchill, I love this quote because it, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. Okay? So if we look into this dictum, which means that everybody plays an important role, okay? not only the public, the technocrats, the politicians, the economists, the, the philosophies, the sociologists, everybody plays a role to shape the built environment. Okay? So in this sense, to build a good environment is that it is the responsibility of all parties. Okay. The government and decision makers are also the important ones that they should introduce a new system of education and environment, which include all aspects of architecture progressively. So this one need to start from the our education system itself. How are we going to educate the new generation about the environment that we live in? Currently, most of our syllabus and curriculum in our education does not touch about this idea of architecture at the early years. So, so most of us only knows about architecture when we go to the professional uh, education at the higher and tertiary level. So this one, the government and decision makers need to play a role. okay. And another one, uh, the media also has to play a role because this is where you should disseminate the works and thoughts, not only about local architects, academic scholars, but also the public also, to give more awareness towards knowledge of the built environment. And this can promote a lot of intellectual debate and discourse on a lot of important architectural issues. And the the following that is that the public, which is comprising of students, the architects and also the public also, because we need to look into uh, the built environment and we need to shape on how we do we live and how do we shape the local architecture scene in general so I think I'm agreeing with you Hanif because it should be a a whole angle of involvement from all different parties to have this knowledge in architecture and also on the built environment so that we can create a much better living place for all of us in this universe especially in Malaysia
0: you've been tuning in to I Love KL and that was Ali Sabrina Ismail she's the Director of Architecture from the Faculty of Built Environment and Surveying University of Technology Malaysia and we've been exploring the question of Malaysian architecture from a beginner's perspective that's all we have for this episode of I Love KL if you miss any part of the show you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash ilovekl our app which you can find via google play and the app store and also spotify don't forget to also follow the station on twitter at bfm radio my name is Anif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to ilovekl bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city join us again next week only on bfm 89.9 the business station